0: the active podcast a podcast for the real life working screenwriter i'm tasha hugh
1: and i'm josh hallman
0: and please remember (laughs) to subscribe to our podcast uh we are interviewing some really cool writers that josh has lined up and i'm very excited about it so follow us yeah we are like a boss no
1: oh yeah all you oh sure
0: (laughs) um (laughs) If you'd rather DM us, if you have questions or you have topic suggestions or follow-ups to any of the things that we talk about, or you just want to say, like, you're fucking crazy, what you said was really dumb and makes no sense, that's okay, too. We can talk about it. Mm -hmm. You can reach out to us at act2writers at gmail.com, all spelled out, or on our Twitter and Instagram at act2writers. I am also on Instagram at Story Thursday or Twitter at Tasha3.0. I'm
1: Josh Hallman on Instagram and Joshua Hallman on Twitter.
0: All right, this week in writing. What do we got? (laughs) How many do you have?
1: I it's not even a this week in writing. I do have like I have so many things going on in my brain, but I couldn't formulate a one this week in writing. (laughs) So I just thought that I would tell you something that I found really interesting and I find really cool. I think you're gonna appreciate it. Okay. When young Josh first moved to Hollywood, he moved I'm so excited (laughs) already. I moved into an apartment complex called the Barbara Judith Apartments. It was on Hollywood and Genesee and I loved it. It's in West Hollywood and it was like my favorite spot. It's a studio apartment and I had some of the greatest times of my life there. And long story short, I was talking to a friend that I met over at the Barbara Judith Apartments and I happened to just put in the address and check it out. And I was like, yeah, what are these, like, what are these apartments up to these days? And I saw that they changed the name of the apartment complex. Would you like to know what the apartment complex is now now called?
0: Oh no, what?
1: The Expendables.
0: What? <laughs>
1: yeah, it's called The Expendables.
0: And it's still an apartment <laughs> complex called The Expendables?
1: Yeah. It's fucking awesome, man.
0: <laughs> I would definitely
1: live there. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> like but, well we it used to be called the barbara judith which around the apartment complex everyone just called the bjs but now it's (laughs) called the expendables and i think it's a much better name
0: (laughs) oh indicative of the kinds of people who live there
1: listen what's your this week in writing
0: (laughs) um mine is a question from a listener (laughs) Um, Who had some questions about our adaptations episode. And this comes from David. Thank you, David. And um, he was speaking about our last episode about how to start an adaptation. And his questions were really like, well, what do you do before that? How do you choose what to adapt And do you try to pick something that's obscure that no one's ever heard of? So you're like the first person in. Do you pick something familiar that everybody knows? And then, if let's say you find this really great fairy tale from the 1800s, do you make it contemporary? Do you set it in the 1800s when the fairy tale was set? Like, how do you make these decisions? I feel like that is a very good and big question. And it really depends on you, to be honest. Um, What kind of stuff do you like? What kind of stuff do you feel like you would adapt well that you would fall in love with? Um, I know people, for instance, who make it a point, they schedule into their week to always read short stories that they either find on the interwebs or they buy a book of short stories and they just read one per weekend and you might find something in there that's the seed of a really great idea. And often short stories can be easier to get the rights to in order to adapt. So, so that's yeah. a really great place to look for something. Um, but again, you're going you're to want to try and find stuff that's in your wheelhouse, right? Like I love writing stuff that's not entirely in our world, something that's sci-fi or fantasy and um, action adventure. So I'm probably not going to read stuff that's like true crime. As my short stories right that's just not interesting to me so find your niche look look for stuff in there always just be reading articles in the news that's always something that you can find to adapt fast and furious came from an article about street racing in los angeles that came up in like la times or something um or new yorker and so just be reading i think is is how do you choose what to adapt and then do you pick something that's obscure that no one's ever heard of, or do you pick something that's familiar that everyone knows? And that's also very complicated. I mean, the answer is yes to both of them. Um, I think, you know, you, you, there's a lot of benefits to finding an IP that everybody knows, Peter Pan, for instance. And if you can find a way into Peter Pan that is new and different that no one else has ever done before, kudos to you, you will probably sell it. Because mm. everyone knows the IP, they're familiar with it, there's already a built-in audience for that story because it's so beloved. Yeah, But yeah, you do have to do a lot of work to figure out the new version of it. If you find something obscure, is that valuable? Yes and no. Sometimes, uh, just to give you an indication, when I was an assistant at Universal, a big part of my job was whenever we'd get submissions of a new book or a new short story, part of my job was to find out how popular it was. And sometimes my boss, actually all the time, my boss would not read the material unless it was already really popular. I don't think that's the way to handle things, and there are plenty of people in our industry who want obscure things, look for obscure stories, because the truth of the matter is in our business right now, IP, no matter where it's from, is still considered valuable. Yeah. And that's a whole other that's a whole other episode about how That works and why. So I don't know if that answers the question. I mean, I feel uh, that's why the answer is yes. Either something obscure or something familiar. It kind of doesn't matter. I think the true north is find something that you really love, that you find really interesting. Both have value just in different ways. And then if your question is, do I contemporize Peter Pan? That's really a personal question. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) I I think that it's tough because... Movies that are set in a different period or a different world are really expensive. They're just more expensive than if you set a movie in current day Toronto, for instance. It it just is. So pay attention to that. If you feel like the movie will be huge and it's a spec that you're writing, meaning it's it's something original that you're expecting another studio to buy um, from maybe a writer who doesn't have a filmography behind them already. It's harder to get those movies made if they're really expensive. It doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. I think you should do whatever movie you see in your head. But a contemporary, contemporary version of Peter Pan, for instance, will probably get more reads and be more interesting to people than one that's set in whenever Peter Pan is set, 1900s.
1: Yeah, I'm in for all that. Talking about finding articles, going back to this. Yeah. If you just scour the internet, scour you can even find old articles on like old new york times or in newspapers you'd be surprised of all the cool shit you can find and it's it's i know i'm saying this like oh yeah it's like you know it's easier said than done you know how do you find something that people haven't found right so but there are a ton of articles i have found them i where that people haven't heard of them and I have found them Mm -hmm. interesting I've never adapted any of them but there's things that I've read where I'm like oh that's super cool and it's from like 1985 or something like that so I think a lot of people just kind of default to oh what's in the current New York Times what's in Wired Magazine or Vanity Fair or whatever like there's like these obvious choices that everyone reads and then there's the depths of the internet Mm -hmm. that you find things that you can adapt into uh article or into uh features they're out there i know they're out
0: there yeah and a job of a lot of producers particularly the younger like hungrier ones is they they do all that scouring themselves because they they want to try and find the obscure article the the equivalent of the fast and furious article from the 80s or 70s and then they bring that to writers that they meet with generally and say like hey does this article interest you i found it so if you're doing that first you get to you get to bypass the producers and you can get the rights to that yourself. And I think that's another piece that is another episode on its own as well. But getting the rights to these things to adapt, that is something you do have to do. So do look into that. Again, we can talk about that in another episode. We actually should have
1: Mm.
0: our mutual friend, um, Steve Desmond on to talk about getting rights to different IP because he is a writer who specializes in that. And um, I always get his advice on on acquiring IP and where he finds it because he's really great at doing all the things we just, just talked about. So maybe we'll have consider him it done. And, consider him yeah. locked
1: in. He's coming done. on.
0: Steve, you're coming to the podcast. Steve, come on. Thanks, man. All right. Do you have another this week in writing? Or are we going to the, to the
1: let's party? All right. I've got, Oh man, I came in real hot today. I'm still feeling pretty good about it. I have got, I've got multiple, different fluids, like I got a ZOA, got electrolytes, regular water, a kombucha, I'm ready.
0: (laughs) I need some of your energy. Oh God, this, okay, so this topic, we're talking about revising. When you get notes on your script, how do you address those specific notes? What do those notes mean? And how do you actually go about the revision process? Because it can be so overwhelming. And we're talking about this because Josh and I are very deep in revisions on our features right now. And this episode will include notes we have gotten personally on our own stuff and that we're dealing with right now. And I will just flag that if I start rambling and become angry and or just start crying, yeah, please be patient with me. <laughs> <laughs> I,
1: I, I think what should be noted is that about 30 minutes ago, before we started to record, you and I were both uh, maybe expressing some frustrations about certain things and, oh, we've got all this energy and... Uh, stressing out and this and that. And it was like, oh, we have to record the podcast now. <laughs> so so it might come out. I, I, ha- I have a feeling we're going to... Yeah, Josh and I, I were both
0: be... literally on notes calls just before this about revising our scripts, right? And, and now here we are mm-hmm. on the heels of that. <laughs> All right, first note.
1: All right. But we're, we're, we've broken this up into four major categories.
0: We have four categories, four examples of big notes you can get And then how do you go about revising them?
1: Yes, because these are like four very important areas that I feel like they come up the most.
0: They come up the most and they're the biggest ones that make you just want to cry and give up.
1: Oh my God, I'm ready.
0: (laughs) Okay, first note, Josh, your script is way too long. Oh, is it now? What do you
1: do? (laughs) All right, obviously with all of this stuff, I first I take a step back and I tell myself everyone's just stupid. And they're wrong, (laughs) but I guess I have to make it work for them. So that's the first thing. (laughs) Obviously, that's with all of these. So you take the step back. This is what I personally do when someone's like, all right, the script is too long. I start looking to put scenes together. Like I will go through Mm. each... By the way, you really do have to clear your head to do this because this is like a skill that I don't even fully have, by the way, but I know people who who can do this pretty well. And it's like... You take the step back, you have to clear your mind and just get rid of everything you know and just say, okay, what is this scene doing? What is the next scene doing? What is the scene after that doing? And really kind of figure out why each scene is very important. And if you yeah. can blend those scenes together, any anything, that's where I personally start. Like I start, what can I put together and what yeah. information can be conveyed in one scene that's being done in two scenes. And I love so. what
0: you said too is, why is this scene here? Why is this scene important? Why does this exist? And if you don't have an answer for that, if it's just like to show a character getting from point A to point B, then can you get them from point A to point B in a line or in a, in a way that you're not going to a whole new scene so that you can cut pages?
1: Yeah, you can always kind of trim back. So that's kind of where I yeah. start. And then after that, it's like kind of asking myself again, all right, well, what is each scene doing? And can I just eliminate this chunk right here and will anything change. Yeah. And this actually happened like you'll give me notes sometimes and you'll just x out big yeah. chunks. <laughs> <I do. laughs> no, <I'm> and <laughs> No, no, no. It's great cuz at first it's like, "Oh my god." But then you I eliminate that chunk and it's like, "Oh, okay. Nothing has changed. It's mm-hmm. still the same script." But as the writer, you feel like something is so important.
0: Yeah. And I think too, especially in your first few drafts, you're just writing things yeah. that come to you because you're just like making connections or you feel like you need that runway to get to another point. When you actually go back and look at it, you're like, oh, that runway is actually not necessary. In fact, if I start halfway through this scene instead of at the top of the scene where I did originally, it's actually more impactful because we're getting to the point a lot quicker. Troy, my former assistant, he, he, he would always say, um, how much can you move left i think you would say where it's like how much can you move your starting point so that it's further further in the scene than you maybe start your scene so are there scenes you can start a little bit later is something that he would ask himself which i think is a really great great it's a really great question
1: great question yeah like start late get out early
0: yeah yeah start late, get out early yep it's something i do because i've for literally every single script i've written for a tomb raider I was told, Tasha, you can't have your scripts be that long. (laughs) We don't have the money for that. You need to make them literally 22 pages.
1: Uh And
0: as someone who writes 60-minute TV shows and -and two-and-a-half-hour movies, this was extremely difficult for me. So it was all the things that Josh talked about. It's combining scenes, getting in and getting out early. But it's also... dialogue is huge for me because dialogue takes a lot of space on a page. It takes a lot of time as well for people to say that. And the process of having to cut four or five pages from my every episode in Tomb Raider has really helped me hone in on what dialogue is absolutely necessary and what dialogue is just fluff. Mm
1: -hmm. And also
0: how can my characters get to their point much quicker. And what I have found is that while I love the sound of my own voice, when I'm talking through my characters and it's lovely, it's brilliant. They can actually get to their point twice as fast as I thought they could. And that has been a really interesting lesson. And I bet you, if you go back through your scenes, if your script is too long, you will absolutely find yourself doing that where you're having your characters say just too much.
1: Do you ever read scripts that you've written even months ago and then you haven't read it in a while, then you read it again and you like cringe. You're like, why is this even in here? Constantly. I could have eliminated this.
0: Yeah, you never see it in the moment, which is why your, your first step of taking a big step back, which I, I think means if you can, if you have the luxury of it, take a day or two off from the script right. and then come back to it. Yeah. And then it's just honestly, it's widows and orphans. Like, get rid of those. I do I do whole passes where I'm just I'm just reading action description yeah. to see if I can't make the action instead of three lines can I make it two
1: one hundred percent can I even
0: make it one? like what can I do and also when you do that your script is punchier it's faster it, it's a cleaner read so how can you edit yourself that way and just cheat you're not even taking out dialogue right you're just cheating how someone reads your scene
1: yeah there's nothing like more gratifying than when you kind of you delete one word and then like it moves the entire page up and you just yeah. save like an entire half page. You're like, wow, that felt great because of <laughs> so the way the, the formatting yeah. is on Final Draft. I uh, And also I just need to say what's really invaluable is if you have friends or a writer's group, this is where it comes in handy, where people who aren't you can read and give you an opinion and you have to take that opinion because they're a trusted person. Otherwise, why mm-hmm. are you giving it to them? And you listen to them and you think, okay, I can cut things out because... Tasha and Dave told me that I can trim a few pages here. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, for sure, for sure. So that's that's what we do if your, your script is too long. What about your character arcs aren't working? Um, this can be such an overwhelming note, by the way, and make you want to cry because character is everything. And then someone reads it and they're like, I don't really get it. Like your character is <laughs> not like that good. Um, so for me, my approach is to start small. And this is where I think... Working off of turning points in your script can be very helpful, right? If you know you have an inciting incident, you have a second act break, you have a midpoint. These are just smaller sections with which you can work. So now you can break your script down into manageable pieces. So, for example, if you know that at your inciting incident of your movie, your heroes, Maverick and Goose, are chosen to go to Top Gun... But not because they're the first choice, but because this all-American pilot who was the first choice has flipped out and quit. You know that that's your inciting incident, okay? It's built into your outline. It's there. Okay, if that's my inciting incident and that's page 15, then that's all I'm going to focus on right now, just from getting from page one to page 15. I'm not going to worry about the rest of the script yet. That's too overwhelming. So now I just have to figure out how do I get to my inciting incident in the best way possible? So, how do I introduce Maverick and Goose in the absolute best way that people are super engaged and know who they are immediately? Because the note of your arc isn't working can very well be simply because your introduction to your characters is not working. So, if the reader does not understand where your characters start, how can they possibly understand where they end? So, I'm going to look at how I introduce them. And The key there is how do you make it clear to the audience that Maverick is a Maverick, Mm -hmm. right? Well, having him hang upside down and flipping off a Russian pilot is a pretty good way of doing that. But then, okay, now I also have to show that he's a qualified pilot and that he's a good guy that you want to root for. That's important in these first 15 pages. So, how do I do that? How do I get my save the cat moment with Maverick? Uh Well, how about this all American pilot who has a panic attack? freezes and Maverick has to go save him. Great. So now all I've had to do for the day is brainstorm pages one to 15. And then after I get that down and that's really singing and arcing. Okay. I look at the next section, page 15 to page 25, my break into act two. And then I move through the script like that because each section will be tighter than the first version. And suddenly because I'm, I'm hyper-focusing on just this section that is now arcing because that's manageable because I think I start crying when I get this note because I'm like, Oh my God, like I have to rewrite the whole thing. Like, I I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do to help you understand how these characters are arcing, but um, there's a way through and that's thinking small.
1: Yeah, no, I think that's, that sounds about right. Like again, I, I was the way I kind of approach it is taking a step back, same exact thing. And just for what I, So what you just said is perfect because yes, you can look at it. It's very manageable. You can say, "All right, this is what my first act is. This is what my second act is, and my third act." And you can even like second,
0: like two A. Yeah, from because that when you uh, when I look at just my second act, I can't I can't. It's too much. It's too much real estate. But as soon as I'm like, okay, I have to get to a and the midpoint is a. As long as I know that my midpoint is a turning point. I know I need to get my character there somehow. How do I do that? And yeah. then it's like, it's also what I did this week when I got this note was I put, I wrote out on cards, index cards, every single scene that I had. And then I looked at it from that like bird's eye view, literally like putting it on the ground and looking at it and mean, like, okay, well, my scenes are right, but why aren't Why isn't the reader getting the arc? Okay, well, maybe in this scene, what I actually need is to highlight this part instead, because now that I see it all laid out together, juxtaposed against other scenes, I'm kind of seeing how maybe I'm not arcing my character fast enough. And so, you know, you just just start seeing it differently. And so I think that's a big piece too, is trying to jar yourself out of just seeing chunks of this script, right? And like, how do you look at it from a different perspective? Cards can be very helpful in that regard.
1: Yeah. And I I always start with, and I've gotten this note a lot. um, I think to myself, all right, well, where's my character starting? Like who is this person? Where are they when they start? And then Mm -hmm. where are they when they end? And then Mm -hmm. you just kind of go in and you micromanage exactly like you were saying. I agree with everything you said. Yeah,
0: And I think too, if you haven't done this already at this stage, maybe write out a line, a line or two a paragraph that just, what does my character want? Maybe do it for all your main characters just to give them a couple lines so that you have that as your guiding star as you're going back and doing what we're talking about of going smaller and carding it out. Yeah. It's a hard one.
1: It is really hard, especially when you think you're doing it and then someone's like, "I know you're not doing it. "What? What are you talking about? Yes, I am. It's so frustrating.
0: So hard. Not as hard as the next one though.
1: Oh, I love this. Number three. Villain story is not working, Tasha. <laughs> is this is
0: where I cry. This,
1: this is actually one of my favorite <laughs> topics, and I actually want to do an entire episode about this one topic and about antagonists because I don't know. I think you may have gotten this note before. Uh, I've <laughs> definitely I've gotten 20 this note minutes recently. Ago? <laughs> <laughs> I've definitely gotten the note recently where it's like, "Hey, your villain's not dynamic enough." Yeah. And I was doing a lot of thinking about this and how to make a villain work because you have different kinds of villains, right? Like you have the villain, you can have a villain. And if, in my case, if you're writing like a typical, not typical, but if you're writing like an action movie, you you're have writing this a villain. really
0: cliched action movie. <laughs> if, you,
1: if you're just writing a point A to B action movie, that fucking sucks. <laughs> <I'm just kidding. laughs> um, if, where, you know, if you have that villain, who's just trying to like end the world or trying to blow something up. I think sometimes as a writer, which I'm definitely guilty of, you kind of inherently think to yourself, well, this person's bad. That's, you know, this is a bad guy. Everyone's going to know this villain is bad, but that's not enough because it's very superficial. Like that's just what a villain's going to do. So what I will do is, and this is like, I'm not great at this, by the way. This is just, these are things that I like try to do. Number one, I always kind of look back and look at how the villain is completely opposite to my hero or heroes. And just to try to make like that juxtaposition of why this one person is so different. Like they just don't see the way that the hero sees. And Mm -hmm. that I already, I kind of think that starts this connective tissue of like, all right, well, Okay. I see the difference between these two, but I also go in. And for me personally, I try to always give like my villain like vulnerabilities and little quirks to make them seem more human and more Mm -hmm. kind of relatable. So when someone's reading it, you're like, Oh God, I kind of understand why this villain's the way this villain is. You try to like figure out what this villain's flaw is. And uh, like, for instance, you know, if if the villain's going through something throughout the script, I'll sometimes put pressure on that and mm-hmm. make them seem more human. Like, okay, this person's freaking out because they're trying to get their mother out of prison or something like that. I don't, like, there's these mm-hmm. little things that you can do that always humanize villains. And I think then people kind of subconsciously latch onto that.
0: Yeah, if your villain story is not working, looking at how to humanize them might be the key, right? Because maybe the, the reason why you're getting that note is because it does feel like a mustache twirly villain as they say right a cliched villain so how do you add color and complexity to this person
1: and this this might be kind of cheating what I'm about to say but I really do think that's exactly what you just said if you add some color and complexity I think people are all very forgiving because then they Mm. think to themselves wow that's a very interesting villain like I haven't seen that before wow that villain has the personality of like Kanye West wow that's that's eccentric or that's like an Elon Musk type. Oh, okay, cool. You know, there, there's certain things you can do where if you ground it and you, you make it a certain way, I think people are very accepting to that kind of villain.
0: Yeah. It's interesting. We just did a script club for act two last night. And in that script that we read, there is a villain that is just an international terrorist. And Mm -hmm. there's not, there's not a lot of color to this villain. And what we all started talking about when we started talking about, hey, the villain story is not working, was how much we were craving a villain who had a personal connection to our heroes. Mm-hmm. Whereas the international terrorist idea is just it's a guy who's going to do bad things regardless of who your heroes are. But if your heroes are specifically who you've chosen, why is your villain specific to this movie as well? I think you have to think about that piece, too.
1: 100%. Yeah. Yeah. Which is really hard to do, by the way, because sometimes so your your heroes just find themselves up against a villain. Like, yeah, that sometimes is just the way it is. Yeah, and I think when that's what I'm kind of talking about when it is that you can kind of layer in a couple quirks, make it feel very organic, make the villain almost likable, and then and then just really start turning the dial up of how it affects the affects the yeah. hero.
0: Yeah, this is a, this is a really hard note that I. As I kind of am joking about it, it is it is literally something I'm, I'm going to have to do today when we get off this podcast and work on it. And the way that I'm doing it today is that I'm writing out my villain story in bullet points. Um, I'm going back through my script because I was told that the villain story is not tracking and that it's not um, it's not really influencing my hero enough was kind of what the note was so what yeah. i'm doing is i'm i'm going through back through my script i'm taking out all of the scenes that i have that i tag the villain story and whether my my villain is in it or something is going on with the villain b story in that scene i'm going to take that out and i'm going to put it on its own note card or in my case i'm using Milanote. <laughs> a little oh, nice. plug for Milanote. i'm plugging it into Milanote. And then that allows me now to just see these scenes for what they are. Now it's just a bullet pointed list. And so now as I have these beats of what my villain is doing over here on the side, what I'm going to do is I'm going to write out in my head what my villain's actual story is. What is he doing? Like not, not what I'm going to see in the movie. Just like, what is he doing? Um, What is his end goal? And how, what are the steps he's taking to achieve that end goal. And that's just something I'm writing on the side. So now that I see, all right, here's here's what my villain has to do, what about those little bits do I need to put into the movie? And some an example that comes to mind is Harry Potter, the first one, the F- Philosopher's Stone. Professor Quirrell tries to steal the Philosopher's Stone from the bank, right? We see that through Harry Potter reading the newspaper okay when he couldn't get the philosopher's stone he has to go kill a unicorn and suck its blood to keep voldemort alive okay we see that then Quirrell finds you don't remember that come on josh uh, <laughs>
1: jesus christ and going.
0: then Quirrell finds out that the philosopher's stone is being hidden at the school so he sends a troll into the school to distract all the teachers so he can sneak to the third floor and then find it that's right and then Quirrell disguises himself as a dragon egg dealer in order to get the secret to subduing fluffy the three-headed dog from hagrid then Quirrell tries to kill harry at a quidditch match because why not crime of opportunity and then Quirrell sneaks to the third floor and goes after the Philosopher's stone so those are the beats that Quirrell is doing do we need all of those beats we don't have the Quirrell disguises himself as a dragon egg dealer to get the secret to subdue fluffy we don't see that in the movie they took that out and they took it out because it's not from the point of view of Harry. We don't need that scene because Harry is not in that scene. Instead what they've given us is Harry interrogating Hagrid about Fluffy and finding that detail out himself. So again it's through my hero's point of view. So that's why doing this bullet pointed list of hey what's my villain doing just like objectively like outside of my hero's what what is he doing? Because then you start to see okay, what do I actually need to put in the movie and what don't I need? Or what, as Josh, you were saying, what can I combine so that it makes it cleaner? And now that I have that, I can start finding ways to inject it into my movie.
1: The, the antagonist storyline is not to be taken lightly. When you are writing. <laughs> it, I have bumped into this so many times where i thought i was writing an awesome antagonist and then like note comes back and it's like hey your antagonist your villain can be better like
0: oh this is the this is the worst one that i got this week where like i was like so jazzed by my villain i'm like oh he's like super charming like he's brad pitt from fight club and then the note i got back was um We were just, I was just talking about it. And my manager goes, um, and then like, I wasn't even tracking your villain. Like, what's his name again? Like, I don't even remember the scenes that he's in. Oh my God. I'm like, oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) This is someone I thought was like an incredible villain. It was the best villain I've ever written. And she doesn't even remember his name or what scenes
1: he's in. Yeah. Villains are so hard to write. Oh my God. When you can do a great villain, you know, villain, I always think about the villain from the Patriot. What's that, Jason Isaac? Yes. Um, Whoa.
0: One of my favorite movies of all time.
1: That movie, although I haven't seen it in a very, very long time, that was a badass guy. I remember. He's a great villain. He kept doing things that just kept getting worse and worse. And mm-hmm. he's like murdering Mel Gibson's family. He's yeah. burning villages. And yeah. he just. And that was obviously directly related to, you know, he destroyed the hero, not not actually but he like emotionally destroyed the emotionally. hero emotionally and yeah. and then he just physically destroyed everything else in his path.
0: Yeah. Oh, that is such a great example of a villain because the I think the scene that makes it so much so much be- makes the villain particular so much better is comes pretty early when he is talking with General Cornwall Cornwallis, sorry. And he's like being promised land if -hmm. they win this war and there's this sense of like you're poor back in britain and if you succeed here you will get all of these stupid colonists land so you know what drives him and now not that you're on his side but now he's a human complex character like we're talking about Yeah. And then he escalates. I think that is really key. And something I'm working on now today is your villain story escalating each time we pop in and visit them. How is it affecting our hero even worse or making the world more terrible or more urgent at every time we see them? Oh, man, now I have to go rewatch that movie as an example for my movie.
1: You know, I think about that villain all the time. And what's weird is, like I said, I haven't seen it in a really long time, but I just, I, I remember watching it when I was younger and being like, whoa, like he's a pretty bad guy. Yeah. And having that be bad. the first time, I think I saw like, you know, a family being like Children hung. being
0: killed. Yeah, children <laughs> yeah. being
1: killed. And you're like, and he has no remorse and he just keeps yeah. going. And he keeps getting away with things over yeah. and over and over again.
0: Oh, so good. Love that movie.
1: Yeah, so that's like, in my opinion, like a perfect villain. I almost feel like that's like a master class of a villain. People should just watch and then try to like replicate that into their own movie. I don't like,
0: even know how much you're speaking to my soul right now.
1: The funniest I part love is we've never we've, we've never, never even talked about, about it. it. I didn't know you have <laughs> seen it. Oh my god. Yeah, I've seen The Patriot.
0: Oh it's my God. That, I it's got that guy who's that the
1: villain. He's, <laughs> good. He's a good guy. He's... So yeah. All right.
0: Fourth and final note that we're going to talk yeah. about today. I feel like we should oh, god. This is an ongoing <laughs> series I feel like. This one is for Josh. Oh god. Everything but the opening is working, Josh. Fix it.
1: <laughs> I don't know. You tell me. To... No, I... <laughs> I I I honestly, the beginning of scripts in my opinion are like the most important things. I I know people will say, you know, you can write a beautiful like opening and people are like, just stick with the script and this and this and this and this. But those first few pages and your cold opening and just your opening in general is so fucking important, whether or not we have accepted this, but I'm sure everyone kind of already knows it. So I'm struggling with the cold opening for something and I've had to rely on you and Dave and I, I like if i don't if i didn't have people to talk to about the opening i don't know what i would do and i genuinely yeah. mean that i think what i would do actually in which i which i do no matter what is i think of movies that like are comparable like comparable to mine like what's what's another action uh thriller action comedy in this in this territory and then i just kind of look at that opening and why that opening worked and can i borrow that and put it into mine in my own mm-hmm. version because Okay, let's reference True Lies on this podcast for the 500th time. That's an amazing opening. Can I do something like that in my opening? Like, how would that work for me if I'm like really, really struggling to figure out how to kind of like tweak an opening?
0: I think that's smart to look at references of movies that are in a similar genre and or TV shows and how do they open? Because it will definitely spark something for you.
1: Whether yeah. you're,
0: you're taking just a small bit of that part in True Lies that you love And then putting it in your own opening, but twisting it so that it it fits for your story. That can be the key to opening up your brain a little bit more.
1: Yeah, I think for me, that's kind of what it is. Like I I struggle I really do struggle with this because it's I feel like you can kind of you can get away with certain things in scripts where if there's something in act two, it doesn't necessarily have to be perfect like there can be perfect things around it and then there can be like this little average chunk that you can make better (laughs) but that opening is so important because your first impressions are everything you know you read something and you're like i'm out yeah i'm in i don't have a definitive answer i was hoping you could just solve all my problems for me Uh,
0: openings are always going to be tough they're never going to be easy they're my favorite part to write because it feels like Everything's so fresh and new and pure. Nothing's been destroyed yet by my boring ass act two (laughs) (laughs) that I've had to slog through. I love openings and I will revise them till the end of time. But my openings are almost never the problem. It's always my act two. But if you recall, my script that we colloquially call The Woman opened with a blacksmithing scene. (laughs) Do I
1: recall? Yeah.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That I personally loved. And that most people in writer's group were not big fans of. And I said, screw you all. I'm still starting this with blacksmithing scene. And then I just kept getting the note that like, maybe this is a boring way to open your TV show. And so I took it out and put it somewhere else (laughs) because it's not going away. And then I thought, okay, people are bored. How do I make them excited? Yeah. And not only excited, but how do I make them excited and make them understand what this world is. And I think for me, a big thing that I love to do in my openings is think about what is the theme, (laughs) the theme. I love (laughs) themes. Um, What is the theme of my movie or my TV show? Or just like, what is the world that I want to convey? And how do I do that in a really distilled moment that's so visual that's so visceral that's because in the opening is when you can get away with that stuff that's just like it punches you in the face and that's what you what you want the opening to be so I love openings because I feel like that's where I can be like the most creative
1: no 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 that's actually a really good point those are yeah I think you're right where in the opening you can get away with things that aren't so subtle Mm -hmm. Uh, you can do things for instance, we had talked about something in one of my openings recently where, you know, there's these two spies and basically they're getting close to each other. Then all of a sudden these sirens go off in the distance mm-hmm. and then they both kind of look and and whatever. And that wouldn't normally happen, but I feel like you can get away with things like that in an opening mm. just to really kind of set the tone and set who, the, who certain people are. You just get away heightened. with certain things. Yeah, Heightened is the word I'm looking for.
0: Yeah. All right. That's it. Those are, I feel like this is an ongoing series, revisions, what they mean, what's the note behind the note, and then how do you actually practically go about addressing these kinds of things? Because this is one of the biggest headaches and heartaches of our business is getting these terrible notes that make you feel worthless and then (laughs) needing to come back and actually do a job while feeling worthless is very hard.
1: And like we talked about, which I probably should have said at the top of the episode was like. When you get these revisions, when people tell you you need to make revisions, your first kind of instinct, I think, is like, how do I make no revisions while <laughs> making revisions? <laughs> right? like, the that's
0: the path of least resistance, please? Yeah. Like,
1: what can I do here that's not going to kill me? Yeah. But, you know, you got to do it.
0: Yeah. You got to do it. All right. Quote of the day that thematically fits my mood. Oh, God. Don't give up. You're going to get kicked in the teeth a lot, learn to take a hit, then pick yourself up off the floor. Resilience is the true key to success. Melissa Rosenberg. I love it. Please remember to rate and subscribe. Follow us at Act Two Writers for more awesome writing stuff. You can follow me, Tasha, at Story Thursday on Instagram or Twitter at Tasha 3.0.
1: And you can follow me, Josh Holman, on Instagram and Joshua Holman on Twitter.
0: And as always, the Act 2 Podcast is a production of Act 2, a network and support group for the everyday working screenwriter. This episode was edited by Paul Lundquist. Music by 4 and 4beg, which you can find on Spotify.